This episode is brought to you by GSK. Each year, there are thousands of deaths from vaccine-preventable diseases in the U.S. At GSK, we develop and manufacture vaccines to help protect people against diseases like flu, meningitis, and shingles. And by exploring innovative technologies, we're working to develop new vaccines against diseases previously beyond our reach. Because the more diseases we prevent, the more lives we can save. Hello, I'm John Donvan, moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Join us online at iq2us.org to vote on the motion and keep the debate going. Same-sex marriage, everybody's got a view on it. More states than ever before are licensing it. But in most cases, that was not initially because of a law being passed enshrining same-sex marriage as a right. Most often, it was because courts struck down laws that were passed against it. Judges are making the call, using the Constitution for their guide, which is a different filter on the issue from the ones that most of us use. But what then does the Constitution Tell us about same-sex marriage. Well, it sounds like there must be a debate in that, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. The Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are in Philadelphia partnering with the National Constitution Center for one of our constitutional debate series programs. We have four superbly qualified debaters. Our debate will go in three rounds, and then our live audience here in Philadelphia will vote to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Let's meet our debaters. First of all, please welcome uh, John Eastman. Ladies and gentlemen, John Eastman. John, welcome. You are chairman of the board of the National Organization for Marriage, a professor at Chapman University's Fowler School of Law and founding director of the Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence. That organization is counsel of record in two of the briefs that are filed in the Supreme Court same-sex marriage case, and you have an insider's view personally of the Supreme Court uh, because you are a former clerk for Justice Clarence Thomas. Any doubt in your mind where he would be on this issue? No more doubt on my mind on his views than on Justice Ginsburg's views on the case. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thanks, John Eastman. And, John, your partner is? My partner is Sheriff Gerges, and he's an Ivy League-educated expert on the institution of marriage. Ladies and gentlemen, Sheriff Gerges. Sharif, you are also arguing for the motion that the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriage. You are co-author of the book, What is Marriage? Man and Woman, a Defense. Um, You're currently pursuing both a Ph.D. in philosophy from Princeton and a law degree from Yale. You've got a lot of free time on your hands. Um, You were born in Cairo, but didn't stay there very long. Isn't that right? Right. Actually, I grew up mostly in Delaware which in other parts of the country is a conversation stopper. (laughs) (laughs) But but it's the first state. That's true. Yeah, the first ones to sign on to the Constitution. We had nothing to lose. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Sheriff Gerges. Our motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. We have two debaters arguing against it. They're against the not. Um, Let's please welcome first Evan Wolfson. Evan Wilson, uh, you are founder and president of Freedom to Marry. You are author of the book Why Marriage Matters. Um, You are widely thought of as the architect of the national marriage equality movement. Um, And we read recently that your greatest hope uh, is that the Supreme Court's upcoming same-sex marriage ruling will put you out of a job. 
does, does that mean early retirement for you? <laughs> well, I do hope that the Supreme Court will allow freedom to marry to close its doors, having achieved its mission, but neither my temperament nor my finances will really allow for retirement. <laughs> so uh, hopefully, there, and fortunately, there are many other good causes to plunge into. All right. Well, we're glad to have you on our stage, and we want to know who is your partner. My partner is my good friend, Kenji Yoshino. Ladies and gentlemen, Kenji Yoshino. (laughs) Kenji, you're a professor at New York University School of Law. You're the author of a lot of books, including the just-released Speak Now, Marriage Equality on Trial. Uh, That tells the story of the Hollingsworth versus Perry uh, case out in California that overturned Proposition 8, California's ban on same-sex marriage. Considering what's coming up on the Supreme Court's docket this season, the timing for that book could not be better. Was that the plan all along? I wish I could claim such prescience, uh, John, but uh, it was totally happenstance. And I can say that the two people in the country who could match the same-sex couples who wanted to get married and wanted the Supreme Court to take the case in terms of their euphoria when the Supreme Court finally did take the case for my editor and my publisher. <laughs> Publishing is happy. Ladies and gentlemen, Kenji Yoshino and the team arguing against the motion, the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriage. Let's move on to round one. Round one, opening statements by each debater. In turn, our motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. Here to speak first for this motion, Sharif Girgis, co-author of the book What is Marriage? Man and Woman, a Defense. Ladies and gentlemen, Sharif Girgis. Well, thank you. And first I want to say it's a huge honor to be speaking opposite these really distinguished guests. I mean, Evan Wolfson, as they said, is the architect of the movement for same-sex marriage. He's a remarkable visionary and leader, whatever you think of the substance of the issue. And Kenji Oshino is rightly regarded, including by lots of my conservative friends, as one of the best teachers in the legal academy and certainly one of the best writers. I think you'll see all of that on display tonight. And it would worry me, except that I think you can be fully on board with their view of same-sex marriage as a policy matter and still agree with us. The Equal Protection Clause is not enough. It says, don't be arbitrary. So have a reasonable vision of what marriage is and of its public purposes and apply it equally, not arbitrarily. It doesn't tell you what vision of marriage to adopt, but that's what this whole debate is exactly about. Do we adopt the consent-based view of marriage that says it's fundamentally about deep romantic love and commitment? In which case, yes, recognizing that equally requires recognizing same-sex relationships? Or do we have a different vision of marriage, the more traditional vision in our law, the conjugal view of marriage, that says marriage is fundamentally about that union in which a man and a woman are coming together and oriented to family life by the very nature of the bond. The act that makes marital love is the kind of act that makes new life, the only relationship that can give kids a shot at being reared by their own mother and father. The problem's for the other side in this particular debate, are that the Constitution doesn't tell you which of those views to adopt, and there's nothing inherently wrong with the conjugal view. Now, they're going to say, that's not true. That last part's not right. The only way you could make your way to the conjugal view is if you were motivated by animus. History disproves this. This isn't the only way you can get to this view. In fact, there have been cultures that span the spectrum of attitudes towards homosexuality and still have the conjugal view of marriage in their law. Cultures that were perfectly aware of and celebrated long-term same-sex relationships in ancient Greece in various forms, for example, but still thought it had nothing to do with marriage. 
they might say, well, maybe the view itself isn't motivated by animus, but the idea that same-sex marriage has anything to do with linking kids to their own mom and dad does. It's unreasonable. There's no link. And the problem with that view is that even some prominent same-sex marriage supporters reject it or reject something very close to it. E.J. Graff says it will be breathtakingly subversive to recognize gay marriage. It will introduce a revolt against the institution to its very heart, forever cutting the link between it and diapers. Masha Gessen, a a same-sex marriage advocate, says it's a no-brainer that the institution of marriage shouldn't exist and that this is a stepping stone to its deinstitutionalization. They all agree that sexual complementarity, the idea of a man and a woman coming together as mother and father to their kids, and marriage law historically are all linked together. They just disagree on whether it's a good or bad to delink them. So whatever you think of that view, you might reject it, but it can't be motivated by irrationality. Nothing our opponents tonight will say, to, can say will undermine the idea that it's reasonable at least, whether you agree with it or not, to think that it's worth preferring biological parenting wherever possible, giving kids their best shot at it by using our marriage law unobtrusively to do that, and leaving other adults to live and love the lives of their choice. Thank you. Thank you, Sheriff Girgis. Our motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. And here to present his argument against this motion, Evan Wolfson. He is founder and president of Freedom to Marry. Ladies and gentlemen, Evan Wolfson. Thank you. We're not talking here about same-sex marriage, some other new thing. What we're talking about is the freedom to marry. The freedom to marry is a fundamental right affirmed by the Supreme Court at least 14 times. And in the United States, rights belong to individuals, not categories. A supermajority of Americans now support the freedom to marry for gay couples. Now, even if there were not majority support, the court should uphold the Constitution. But the shift in public opinion tells us something. As Americans have gotten to see real families, not just theoretical categories and stereotypes and prejudices, they've come to understand how the Constitution's command applies equally to loving and committed couples of the same sex. And in the past two years, 65 courts, state and federal, appellate and trial level, Republican appointees and Democratic appointees have ruled now in favor of the freedom to marry with only the smallest handful coming out the other way, one of which is now on appeal to the United States Supreme Court. And in all those 65 cases, my favorite passage comes from the case in which we brought the freedom to marry to Utah. The judge in that case said, it is not the Constitution that has changed, but the knowledge of what it means to be gay or lesbian. Only those who are willfully blind to the common humanity of gay people today can deny what is clear under the Constitution. Gay people share the same mix of reasons for wanting and needing the freedom to marry and for wanting and needing respect for their lawful marriages as non-gay Americans do. And the Supreme Court has spelled out what these attributes, what these aspects, what these interests in marriage are. The case of Turner v. Safley, the case asking the question whether prisoners could be arbitrarily denied the freedom to marry. And in that case, the Supreme Court enumerated 
four important attributes of marriage. Number one, the opportunity to make a commitment to another person and to make a statement publicly about that commitment and have that commitment reinforced and and ratified by the community and the law. Number two, the spiritual and religious and personal meanings that marriage brings to many. Number three, the prospect, the court said, of what the court called physical consummation, which we usually call something else, particularly on a Saturday night. And number four, the tangible and intangible protections and responsibilities that marriage brings under our system of law. Gay people share an equal and vital interest in every single one of these important attributes. The freedom to marry is important, and therefore to be denied it is to not be treated equally, which, under the command of our Constitution, is a guarantee each and every American has. There is no justification for continuing this discrimination, and you should vote no. Thank you, Evan Wilson. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two against two, fighting it out over this motion. The Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. You have heard two of the opening statements, and now on to the third. I'd like to welcome to the lectern John Eastman. He is the Henry Salvatore Professor of Law and Community Service at Chapman University Fowler School of Law, where he also served as dean. Ladies and gentlemen, John Eastman. Thank you very much. I, too, am delighted to be here and to participate in this debate with such esteemed colleagues. Um, uh, In the brief that Evan Wilson filed in the Supreme Court in the marriage case is currently being heard there, he repeated over and over again the real definition of equal protection as comes to us from Supreme Court precedent. It's not a requirement that everybody be treated equally no matter what the circumstances. It's that all persons who are similarly situated shall be treated alike. The real question for us is whether the Equal Protection Clause requires us to, re, uh, to, to understand or to adopt one version of marriage by which everybody agrees people are similarly situated. If the institution of marriage is simply about the loving relationships between adults and the dignity that the state might confer on that relationship, then there's no reason to distinguish one set of relationships from another. But if marriage is about something different than that, if it's about that unique biological complementarity of men and women structured in an institution that gives life to the, the offspring of that relationship, uh, then it's quite obvious that same-sex and opposite-sex couples are not similarly situated. And it doesn't violate equal protection not to treat groups who are not similarly situated uh, differently. When the Supreme Court 14 times in its cases has talked about marriage as a fundamental right, it has always been in the context of that basic understanding. In Loving versus Virginia, it went on in the sentence after the one Evan quoted to say, because it's, it's necessary, it's essential to our very existence and survival. That's not true if you remove from that purpose of the institution this unique procreative ability of men and women. Uh, and the third is if we're going to radically redefine that purpose, to be about adults rather than that child-centered focus. Who decides that question? Well, in our society, in almost every case, uh, the Constitution does not settle those questions. It leaves it up to the people to decide. Uh, And that's the real question we have here. Has this constitutional provision adopted in 1868 
already decided this question for us and says, you know, you people, you don't get to decide this question. We're not talking about discriminating against a group of people. That the Constitution has decided. We're talking about redefining a core societal institution to be a dramatically different purpose than it has ever had before. That question the Constitution doesn't decide. So what happens if we just change the institution of marriage? Well, we've, we've got to experiment with this. Fifty years ago, we changed another core aspect of marriage the norm of its permanence. We did it by adopting no-fault divorce laws. And we said, you know, if things hit a bump in the road, you can get out of your marriage a lot easier than you could. Everybody said at the time it won't affect the institution of marriage, it won't alter your marriage. But what we've seen over those 50 years is a dramatic reduction in the societal norms, the, the, the incentive that the institutional understanding, the definitional understanding provided. People no longer, uh, in many instances, think that marriage is a lifelong commitment. It's, it's a lifelong commitment unless I hit bumps on the road that ceases to be in the way of my adult fulfillment, and then I get out of it. That little shift changed it from a child-centered institution to an adult-centered institution, and it has had dramatic consequences. Well, we're now talking about a shift that's even more profound, to remove the gender complementarity, the gender diversity in the raising of children, uh, all of those things, to make this more about the adult relationship than the child who are the offspring of that man-woman union, uh, is going to dramatically reduce the incentives that that institution provides as cultural norms, cultural John, John Eastman, I'm sorry, matter. your time is sorry, up. I ran out of time. Thank I you very watching. much. Sorry, very much. Thank, Thank you, John Eastman. Our motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. And here to argue against this motion, Kenji Yoshino. He is the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Constitutional Law at the New York University School of Law. Ladies and gentlemen, Kenji Yoshino. So I, too, am so honored to be here with esteemed colleagues to debate this crucial issue. And I want to begin with the language of the Equal Protection Clause, which says, No state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. When this language was ratified in 1868, we were coming off of a civil war. And the framers of that amendment could easily have limited the equality in question to the context of race. And in fact, if we look at the adjacent 13th and 15th Amendments, we see that there are limitations to race, to color, to the previous condition of servitude. So why is it that the framers did not cabin the notion of equality to race, but instead adverted to a higher level of generality? I would offer to you that they jumped up to that level of abstraction because they wanted to leave it to the intelligence of successive generations to determine what equality meant for them. Indeed, if the Equal Protection Clause had not been framed in these majestic and soaring abstract terms, gender equality would not have been able to be a heightened scrutiny classification, by which I mean a classification that draws the particular solicitude of the court, moving us from the presumption that a law is constitutional to moving us to the presumption that it's unconstitutional when heightened scrutiny is applied. Gender discrimination would not be a protected classification under the Equal Protection Clause if we adhered to the understanding of equality that obtained in 1868. So the question for my opponents is, do they believe that the meaning of the Equal Protection Clause 
even though it was textually framed at that level of generality, does not protect women as a heightened scrutiny classification. And if it protects women, then why would it not protect sexual orientation? The first thing I want to point out here, going to Professor Eastman's comments about the propagation of the species, is that gay individuals are not infertile. Gay individuals procreate, and in fact, my husband and I have two children, and those two children are among the hundreds of thousands of children in this country alone who are being raised by same-sex couples. So the argument has to be that we're doing a worse job at raising them, and this would be Mr. Gerges' point, than heterosexual couples are doing with their children. And I would only say that this is not a theoretical question. It's an empirical question. And every major professional organization that touches the interests of children, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, the American Psychological Association, all of these professional organizations have said that gay parents are doing just as well as straight parents and raising their children. The kids are all right. (laughs) I want to close with the words of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in a canonical 1996 equal protection case, because we are talking about equality. She said, the history of our Constitution is the story in which constitutional rights and protections were extended to groups that were previously ignored or excluded. To include those groups, ladies and gentlemen, I ask you to oppose this motion. Thank you. Thank you, Kenji Yoshino. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another directly and take questions from me and from you and our live audience here in Philadelphia. Our motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. Arguing in support of this motion, we've heard from John Eastman and Sheriff Girgis. They have argued that the Constitution does not actually settle this issue. It is not explicit at all, but they argue that the traditional vision of marriage, uh, which they, they use the term conjugal, that that vision has historical roots that need to be respected. Um, they also Um, make the point that repeatedly when the court has addressed the issue of marriage as a fundamental right, it has made it clear that the court, in the court's opinion, that is marriage between one man and one woman. Arguing against them, we have heard from Evan Wolfson and Kenji Yoshino. They argue that, look, it's very simple. The freedom to marry is the freedom to marry. They cite the fact that there are 60% support in polls for single-sex marriage and argue that given the historical disadvantage of uh, Uh, gay people, that only willful blindness would allow the perception um, that same-sex marriage is not constitutionally protected. And they go back to 1868 when the Equal Protection Clause was written into the 14th Amendment, pointing out they believe that it was uh, left to future generations to decide what equality was going to mean. I want to go to the team arguing um, against the motion, which in this case means that you are arguing that the Constitution uh, supports and requires states to license same-sex marriage. Your opponents are saying that by citing the Equal Protection Clause, you're, you can only do so by fundamentally redefining marriage and in doing so actually creating a new right. And I want to ask you to respond to that. 
Yeah, I would say that we're not asking for a new right. We are a new group asking for access to an existing right. So, for example, if we look at Loving versus Virginia or Turner versus Safley, which my friend and colleague Evan Wilson referred to, those are cases pertaining to interracial marriage and inmates' marriage. However, when those plaintiffs sought the right to marry, they did not seek the specific right to interracial marriage. They did not seek the specific right to inmate marriage. They sought the right to marry. Uh, John Eastman, you want to respond? Yeah, I do. Look, uh, because the test the Supreme Court has developed for addressing these equal protection questions is whether the groups are similarly situated, you have to be adopting a view of marriage in which the groups are similarly situated to make that claim. And you necessarily have to be rejecting the view of marriage in which the groups are quite obviously not similarly situated. And it's that change in the understanding of the purpose of the institution of marriage that requires us to treat this as a new claim rather than just access to the existing institution. John, just for clarity, what do you mean when just uh, if you could be more concrete about the sense of uh, similarly situated? Yeah. So a- any two adult relationships are similarly situated is the purpose of the relationship is to foster the love and commitment between the relationships. And if that's what the purpose of marriage was, then I would say it violates equal protection not to extend marriage to same sex couples, to polyamorous or polygamous couples. If instead the purpose is this unique biological complementarity of men and women that bring men and women together for the purpose of producing the children that are the result of that union, uh, then two men are not capable of having women. You, you say you're fertile, that's right, but not, not you know, uh, uh, Kenji says at some point in his book, uh, uh, to say that only men can be fathers and only women can be mothers is to engage in sex stereotyping. No, it's not. It goes to the very essence of the difference between men okay. and women on this core let biological to, purpose. Let me bring it to Evan Wolfson. Well, uh, very quickly to that, people marry for many reasons, and we do not dictate, we do not have the government dictating to you why you marry the person you love and what your marriage needs to be about. For many people, it is about procreating. For many people, it isn't. For many people, it's about raising children, gay and non-gay parents. Uh, raising their kids. And for many people, it's not about raising kids at all. There are many reasons why people marry. And in this free society, that belong, that choice belongs to us, not to the government. And government is not to be used as a weapon to impose one ideological view on everyone else. Sheriff Gergis, I'll come to you one last time on this question of whether it's a new right or not. Uh, no, I mean, of course it's a new right. I mean, it's basically changing the understanding of marriage in order to say that same-sex couples are similarly situated. I mean, I want to know by what principle... Professor Yoshino or um, Evan uh, Wolfson would say, look, if someone says to you, and there are people who say this now, there are three of us, we're three men. We've thrown our lot in for the long haul. We're committed to it through thick and thin. And here's why. It's not because you, you say, oh, well, it's perfectly substitutable. You can settle for one. They say, no, for our identity, that doesn't work. It's not the most fulfilling bond. Surely the principle is recognition of the relationship in which you find most personal fulfillment. We don't want to be stigmatized. We don't want our kids stigmatized. We've been forced into the closet partly because of the gay marriage progress, because we're an embarrassment to the movement, but now we want our turn. What is the answer to that? If you know, love I'm, and commitment is the principle. I'm, I'm astonished it took them that long to go there, because whenever somebody starts talking about polygamy or all this other stuff, it means they do not have an answer to the question that's on the table. Gay people are not saying, let's have no rules and let's let everything happen. What gay people are saying is, let us have what you have. Just as you have the freedom to marry the person who is precious to you and to build a life together under the law, so would we Does, seek that freedom. Are, are, are you, however, then, to some degree, calling upon tradition? 
what I said is when people try to drag the conversation over to polygamy, it's that they don't have an answer to the question that we're debating tonight, which is what reason does the government have for excluding loving and committed gay couples from what other couples have? We could have a million different other debates. Actually, this is I, just I, an evasion, actually. I'd just Sorry. like to come to this Here, point. Gerges. Here's what I was saying. I was saying you have a principle by which you say whether people are being excluded unfairly or not. Now, if we can just name our principle, we can pick it out of a hat, then, of course, we could win by stipulation. I could say, well, my principle is uh, any man and woman as long as one of them has freckles. And, of course, we would laugh that out of the room. We could say, oh, we will apply it equally. I'm asking you why your vision isn't arbitrary compared to this better one. Not the okay, one person who find most personal like, fulfillment, uh, but the like relationship. Let's let like Kenji answer that question. There's so many answers to that, but let me just begin with one, which is um, you know, what, where Chief Justice Roberts is going during oral arguments with, by asking whether this is sex discrimination. So if you actually think about the current definition of marriage that you hold, and you say a man can marry a woman, but a man cannot marry a man, that is facial sex discrimination. If you have polygamists coming in on the day after the Supreme Court rules, hopefully in favor of same-sex marriage, and they say we want to get married, numerosity is not a heightened scrutiny classification you know, in this country. Right? So the sex discrimination argument drives a clean wedge in between uh, what we're keeping intact about marriage and what we're changing about marriage. And I would go on just a little bit to say Mr. Gerges has written a, a very, you know, I think thoughtful book about, called What is Marriage? about uh, the marriage debate. And essentially he says there are three principles of marriage. One is that there's a, a kind of mind-body union, uh, which is only attainable apparently by heterosexual couples. The second is uh, that it is oriented towards family, right? And then the third is that it is monogamous and it is hopefully permanent. Let me go in reverse order. I, I think gay couples are just as capable of monogamy and of permanence. I think gay couples are just as uh, capable of having children in the same way that uh, adoptive parents who are heterosexual have, par- have children. So unless you want to denigrate you know, adoptive parents who are uh, heterosexual, unless you want to denigrate uh, sterile couples, you know, I think that uh, it would be an arbitrary distinction uh, to keep out gay couples simply because they can't procreate internal to the union. And with regard to the mind-body uh, union, essentially what Mr. Gerges says in his book is that a man and a woman, even if both of them are sterile, accomplish something in their sexual coitus right, that is different in kind from two men having sex with each other. And so if anyone is stipulating something should be given to him simply by fiat or stipulation, I would posit that it is a person who says there's just something categorically different, even in the absence of procreation, about heterosexual sex and coitus from homosexual sex. Well, Sheriff, would you make that point to a judge? Uh, Would you actually say, well, in fact... Your Honor, yes, there is something different, and that's what we're here arguing. Well, I would say a couple of things about it. First of all, you disparaged the Greeks and the Romans earlier. The reason in the book that we bring up people who had no connection to Judaism or Christianity and made remarkably convergent views of marriage, the reason we do that is to show that there's a question for the other side that they haven't been able to answer, which is how did that come about? If it wasn't religion or it wasn't bigotry. What, what Professor Yoshino's question shows that the, is that there are ways to describe any view that make it look less plausible. But I can do that for a revisionist view, too. I can say, when two men throw their lot in together and do it for the long haul and share all the burdens and benefits of common life, don't want to be stigmatized, what's so special about whether what brought them together is that they're two brothers or two best friends or what brought them together is climax? What's so morally significant about orgasm? Well, here's a question. Why is sex integral to bodily union. Everybody in the debate agrees it somehow is. If it's just about fostering 
and expressing affection and vulnerability and tenderness, then other activities can do that. In the, in the book, we develop an Aristotelian account where it's about coordinated action towards a single common end that completes and encompasses them both. And that's why the kind of re- union that a man and a woman can have is different in that respect. I want to remind you that we're in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion. The Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. Let's go to some questions. Hi, my name is Samantha Harris. Um, And what I want to know is looking at marriage as a child-centered institution, there are now large numbers of people in two-parent households, gay and straight, where the child is not the biological product of the union. They may be adopted, it may be donor eggs, it may be donor sperm. And in that situation, with those two-parent households, I want to know why the state does not have an interest in affording all of those children and their parents the same legal protections. Yeah, so, so, look. Um, cu- cu- John Eastman. A cu- couple of things. One, uh, we don't have any evidence yet one way or the other, whether uh, issuing a marriage license itself to adoptive parents, to same-sex parents, has any effect on the upbringing of the children. What we do know is when you move away from both biological parents, the increased risk to serious emotional and developmental problems to the children more than doubles. That's true whether the parents are same-sex. It's true whether the parents are opposite sex. It's true when you have one lacking in the biological connection. And so if you take that, and the, the most comprehensive data set we have is from the Centers for Disease Control that demonstrates you go from 7% to 17.5% risk to the kids when both biological parents are not involved. And when you alter the understanding of marriage that discourages a significant number of people who are the biological parents of that child from entering into that relationship and that institution for raising that child, you cause pretty catastrophic harms to kids. And that's why the state has a fundamental interest here in not weakening that institutional draw for the best way to encourage that, that relationship and that structure. Evan I, I think one of the striking consequences of the degree to which we have shown there is no good reason for denying gay people the freedom to marry is that our opponents are left making such an impoverished argument about marriage, such a, such a dismissive argument about heterosexuals or about parents or what they need in order to preserve their bonds or to get married in the first place, when in fact what we're talking about is something that for many people is a high aspiration and a worthy thing, and it involves kids and it involves parents, but it also involves people coming together in love to care for one another. It brings families together. It knits the community together. And, and you would know none of that from their argument. In fact, Ms. Professor Eastman said a little while ago that the state has no interest in any of that. All it has an interest in is imposing his ideological view about biology and complementarity. Well, I don't think that's right, and I think it's precisely because the American people have come to understand that that just doesn't hold up. It's not true that they've understood how it is unfair to sever out gay people as the one group of people who cannot get married. Octogenarians can get married. Sterile people can get married. People who renounce having children can get married. But gay people, even when they're raising children, under this view, would be denied the freedom to marry. And that makes no sense under the Constitution. The mic's coming from your right side. Hi, my name is Scheherazade Jackson, and I am from a mixed couple. (laughs) So 100 years ago, I would not have been able to get married. But my question is, are you saying the Constitution can't grow? Uh, Sheriff Gergis. I think the Constitution 
from the moment the 14th Amendment was passed, was big enough to say that interracial marriage is a fundamental right. At every step of the way, they have to elide over the difference between seeing marriage as a romantic bond, where the other connections are case by case, optional, by choice, in which case, by the way, it does, it's, it's not very clear why it has to still be linked to romance. If, if two people who aren't romantically interested in each other, or if a, a single mom has her sister move in to, move, to raise the kids together, have they made their relationship oriented to family life? I mean, it goes back to this question. Um, does the state interest change when the two adults aren't uh, in a romantic bond? So I, I think their vision can't explain any of these connections, but they have to elide over it. Whereas the interracial marriage thing is straightforward. There's no way of reading the history and thinking this wasn't fundamentally about keeping blacks and whites apart to keep the whites on top, and the court itself said that. Here, by contrast, it's impossible to look at the history and think the only purpose is to oppress gay people. Kenji Yoshino. I want to make another point about the Equal Protection Clause uh, to be responsive to something that um, Mr. Gerges said about how is it that uh, organizations or cultures, uh, cultures really, that were very progressive with regard to gay rights, at least uh, on the surface, nonetheless were opposed to uh, same-sex marriage. So he raised the example uh, of the Greeks. So I would say, you know, this often takes, uh, I think, the more um, plausible form, and um, this is not a knock, I mean, uh, Mr. Gorgas has made this more plausible argument of how can we argue that in this country, the bars in same-sex marriage were enacted with any kind of animus, given that the gay rights movement wasn't even in existence. Can you give everybody, the term animus came up earlier, can you just give the the one-sentence meaning? Yeah, uh, animus is a term of art in constitutional law, and it means moral disapproval of a particular group. And I would actually be interested in hearing both of my parties opposite. I would be very curious to know whether you morally disapprove of same-sex relationships, not same-sex individuals, but whether or not you have moral disapproval of same-sex sexual conduct. And I think that's a relevant issue, right, because not under the animus, you know, torch-wielding villagers, you know, you're a terrible people kind of claim, but just simple moral disapproval, which is the only constitutional standard uh, that we need in order to strike down uh, this uh, ban, uh, whether or not you have that. Why, but, but, why is it relevant whether, whether, what his personal views are as opposed to the constitutional argument? Because I think that when you run out of arguments in constitutional law, uh, what's left is the residue. And the way that things are reasoned out under rational basis review is you ask the other side to produce all of their justifications. And then if there's nothing left, then the idea is there's animus involved. It's simple moral disapproval. We've offered lots of rationales. You disagree with them or don't like them, but that doesn't mean they're not perfectly valid rationales. Here's here's what was said when the North Carolina uh, statute was proposed. Moms and dads are not interchangeable. Two men do not make a mom. Two moms do not make a dad. Children need both a mother and a father. That's the critical to understanding this natural understanding of marriage, that it brings together the unique biological, rooted-in-nature complementarity of men and women for a purpose that is different than all of the collateral purposes we often assign to marriage. But the state's interest uh, in furthering that institution for that purpose is why we are here. But John, what what about the gauntlet that was just thrown down, asking whether you have moral disapproval and that's informing your arguments and whether that's relevant? It's completely irrelevant to the constitutional question, as it was to what 6 million or 7 million Californians voted who voted for Proposition 8 thought about that question. The issue is whether there is any plausible explanation that is rational. We have offered several, which you have not rebutted. I just want 
a yes or no but, question. But, to, do but, you but, believe that there's something? Yeah. This is a policy matter, morally objectionable about same-sex sexual it, conduct. It's completely irrelevant. It's a yes to the or con- no. no. I don't care. No, I mean, just give can, that to you me. can press it all you want. It's completely irrelevant to the constitutional. We've question. reached an I'm impasse, get- and we have also reached the end of round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is: the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. Now we move on to round three. Round three will be closing statements by each debater in turn. Motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. Here to summarize his position supporting the motion, Sharif Girgis, co-author of the book What is Marriage? Man and Woman, a Defense. Ladies and gentlemen, Sharif Girgis. I think love and companionship and commitment and mutual care are valuable in themselves wherever they show up. Here's a quote. I understood marriage as the rare place where law and love converge. That's from Professor Yoshino's lyrical account of his own story in conjunction with a policy case for same-sex marriages, which is what his book on Prop 8 is. It's giving you reasons for that policy. Now, here's another quote and another view. I've never been fully out as Polly. I have to live knowing that someone I love thinks that if her mother knew that she has a second partner to love and support her, take care of her kids, it might lead to shaming and rejection. Some people's innate personality means they would never feel emotionally satisfied in a monogamous relationship any more than a gay man would in a straight marriage. That's from Michael Carey, who had to write under a pseudonym in Slate. Now, maybe Professor Yoshino wants to say that if he's against polyamory, it must mean that he thinks these are sinners. I doubt that. They also want you to squint at the Constitution and see that the Constitution requires ratifying Professor Yoshino's view in his book, but somehow leaves this one out in the cold. I don't see that either. They're both policy debates. Here's a third view. This is from a woman who grew up in a gay welcoming community by her own lights, with two moms. She says, wonderful memories with my two mothers. But one need they couldn't meet was for a father, not because they weren't good enough parents. I love a man I don't even know, who by all accounts is a lousy father. I ached for him to love me. Promoting same-sex parenting guarantees that a child will miss out on her mother or father. That's Heather Barwick writing to the Supreme Court in this case. Look, we're not telling you any of these is immoral or moral. We're not telling you that any of them is off the table, but they are. They're saying that somehow the Constitution rules Heather's voice out of this conversation, and we're saying it treats all of them on a par. Thank you, Sheriff Gerges. The motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. Here to make his closing statement against this motion, Kenji Yoshino. He's author of the book Speak Now, Marriage Equality on Trial. So I always wear a suit when I teach my classes in constitutional law. And one of my colleagues once asked why I dress so formally. And I said, I think the law is an honorable profession. And he guffawed. (laughs) And he said, most of your graduates are going to go out and help large corporations beat the crap out of each other. So don't get on your high horse. Why do you think this is such an honorable profession? So I went back up to my office and I thought about it for a while. And here's what I came up with. Were it not for the law, a life that would have previously been as unimaginable as the questioner who talked about her interracial marriage would have been unimaginable for me. At the time when I came out, I was extraordinarily fortunate that sodomy laws were on the wane and that it would no longer be deemed a criminal for engaging in sexual conduct with somebody of the same sex. By the time I met the man to whom I made a monogamous, lifelong commitment to, it was possible to marry him in the state of Connecticut. 
And by the time Ron and I, my husband and I, decided that we wanted to have children, surrogacy laws and adoption laws made it possible for us to welcome first a daughter and now a son into the world. So whenever I hear people like my party's opposite, as much as I respect them, make arguments about how this is just about the selfish desires of adults rather than giving the maximum protection to our children, or that we're somehow radically changing the definition of marriage rather than fulfilling everything that marriage might mean. I always think back to my husband and to my two children and think that I've been completely deprived of any capacity to be cynical about the law because every time I needed the door to push a door open in my life, it pushed. And now we're at a moment where we can stop living under the Equal Protection Clause and finally, as gays and lesbian couples, live up to it. Thank you, Kenji Yoshino. The motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. And here to make his closing statement in support of the motion, John Eastman, chairman of the board of the National Organization for Marriage. So 50 years ago, legislatively, we changed one of the core aspects of marriage uh, with no-fault divorce, and that's had pretty dramatic consequences. You change an institution, you're necessarily going to change that institution's norm-inducing behavior. Uh, in 2012, the European Convention of Human Rights, their constitution, does not require member state governments to grant same-sex couples access to marriage. And yet, Ireland voters chose to do that. What we're asking here is that the same thing applies in our Constitution. It doesn't settle this question. Uh, The question ought to be up to the voters on whether we're going to embark upon such a fundamental retransformation of the very purpose of the institution of marriage. Uh, Justice Kennedy himself, a year ago, uh, says that the respondents in this case, in a different case, uh, insist that a difficult question of public policy must be taken from the reach of the voters. That is inconsistent with the underlying premises of a responsible, functioning government. He went further. He said, it's demeaning to the democratic process to presume that voters are not capable of deciding an issue of this sensitivity on decent and rational grounds. If we settle this through the normal political uh, uh, means, we will all have a much greater stake in the resolution than if it is imposed on us by the court. Abraham Lincoln, in his first inaugural address, uh, addressed that point. The candid citizen must confess that the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court, the instance they are made in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions. The people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent tribunal. The Constitution doesn't settle this question. We ought to let we the people do it. Thank you, John Eastman. And the motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. And here to make his closing statement in uh, opposition to the motion, Evan Wilson. He is author of the book, Why Marriage Matters, America, Equality, and Gay People's Right to Marry. A little over a week ago, I flew home to Pennsylvania, where I grew up, to celebrate my sister's wedding. And after 10 years together, 11 years together, with her longtime partner, she and Patty were able to marry because we had brought the freedom to marry to Pennsylvania, and it was beautiful. In a few days, my husband and I will fly home again to Pittsburgh to celebrate my parents' 60th wedding anniversary. And I'm quite sure that my parents, as we toast them and celebrate 60 years of love and commitment and joy and sacrifice and dedication, 
will insist on offering a toast to my sister and her wife. Nobody's wedding took anything away from anybody else's wedding. Nobody's marriage took anything away from anybody else's marriage. There was enough marriage to share. And sharing the rights, the guarantees, the joy, the love, the dignity, the support that our Constitution makes affordable to all of us is exactly what our Constitution requires. What our Constitution does not require and does not tolerate is that we have to ask permission of others to share in the same freedoms, the same rights, the same dignity that are our birthright as Americans under the Constitution. The Constitution guarantees the freedom to marry, and there is enough marriage to share. Happily, a majority of Americans have come to understand this. An overwhelming majority of judges now who have had to look at these kinds of arguments and assess the evidence have found it too, and I urge you to do what we hope the Supreme Court will do, reject this discrimination, and affirm the freedom to marry for all. Thank you, Evan Wilson. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is the Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. I have the final results. Again, the team whose numbers have changed the most between the first and the second votes will be declared our winner. The motion is this. The Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. On the first vote, 13 percent agreed with that motion. 53% were against and 34% were undecided. Those are the first results. Remember, the team that changes the numbers most between the two votes has declared our winner. Let's look at the second vote. The team arguing for the motion, their second vote was 14%. That was up one percentage point. That will be the number to beat, one percentage point. Let's see, the team arguing against their motion, their first vote was 53%. Their second vote was 83%. They pulled up over 30 percentage points. So it's the team arguing against the motion, declared our winner. They argued against the motion. The Equal Protection Clause does not require states to license same-sex marriages. Our congratulations to them, and thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, presented in partnership with the National Constitution Center, was held at the FM Kirby Auditorium in Philadelphia. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Clea Chang is director of production. Chris Kamakawa is director of research. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit iq2us.org. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR. This debate was brought to you with generous support from the National Constitution Center through a generous grant from the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed during this program are those of the program participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you, with visionary support from the Conrad Davis Family Foundation, David A. Coulter, the Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, the Rosencrantz Foundation, and more. From Intelligence Squared U.S., thank you.